This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everyone. Isaiah 40, verse 8 tells us the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. The word does endure forever. The problem in the West, though, is that our grasp of the word has not endured among us as a people. We are losing not just our belief in or understanding of the word of God. We are also losing basic familiarity, which has major real world consequences. But when you go back into the history of the West, the story of the influence of the Bible is absolutely incredible. And even Many Christians don't know enough about this history. So we're going to talk about it today with author and speaker Vishal Mangawadi. He has been called India's foremost Christian intellectual, lecturing in 40 countries. And today we'll be talking about his new release. This book changed everything. Volume one, the Bible's amazing impact on our world. Vishal, it's wonderful to have you with us. How are you? Thank you, Janet. I'm doing well, and it is an honor to be speaking to your audience. Well, thank you for being here. I know that you are covering lots and lots and lots of history in your book, and it's difficult to whittle it all down. But I found it interesting. You started out with a description of the Swiss Reformation and the 500th anniversary of that Reformation. Why start there? What is it about that event that is really important to this whole discussion of the Bible's impact? Well, Switzerland is a landlocked country like Colombia in South America or uh, many countries like Nepal in Southeast Asia, um, South Asia, but how it was transformed by the Bible and then went on to reform nations out of the influence of Geneva, etc. So uh, this year is the 500th anniversary of the Swiss Reformation, which begins in 1519 and continues until 1536 when. Calvin actually moves into Geneva. So uh, I happen to have been spending quite a bit of time in Germany, Austria, Switzerland during 19, uh, 2017, 18, and early 2019. And because um, I began writing this book while I was in the city of St. Gallen, I thought that it would be interesting to focus this particular book on well, begin with begin and end with Switzerland, though I cover a lot, including a lot of the United States of American history in that book. Yes. Well, it's interesting because during the period of the Reformation, this was true in the chapter that you describe St. Gallen, but also a lot of other places in Western Europe. The Reformation had such a big impact and there was so much knowledge of the Bible and there was so much impact on the culture itself. How do you introduce the reader to the concept of the Bible making a huge difference, not just within the church walls, but on the culture as a whole? Well, these days, since I have another month in the USA, I'm talking about the difference between North America and South America. Why is immigration, illegal immigration, only one way? It is because the international border between North and South America is the Bible. Hmm. Uh, The North America, the Puritans who came, the father pilgrims who came here, 
they came with the Bible seeking God. Those Spanish and Portuguese who went to South America, they were seeking gold. Yes. When the revolution began in South America, it begins with about 1809 with Simon Bolivar. Bolivia is named after him, but he actually began the liberation of the heart of South America from Spain. Now, he brought enlightenment ideas with him. Uh, He traveled on his military campaign with Voltaire's letters. Uh, Montesquieu's Spirit of the Laws and Adam Smith's Wealth of the Nation. But the spirit of lawlessness, poverty, and slavery, tyranny, has continued to rule South America because South American Revolution was inspired by the French Revolution beginning in uh, 1789, ending in 1799, but within two or three years becoming a reign of terror instead of freedom. So while American Revolution succeeded, South American Revolution, uh, like French Revolution, ended in tyranny and chaos, and France has never recovered from that, nor has South America. So what the European Enlightenment, which, which inspired South American revolutions, what it did was it took the Protestant ideas of freedom and justice and law and uh, prosperity on which North America was founded. So um, uh, U.S. revolution which was really aftershock of the Puritan Revolution in England and the Protestant Reformation in Germany. So I'm explaining in my lectures during this one month here in the U.S. that the difference between North and South America is the Bible and the legal tinkering and even making a wall, putting up a wall, is not going to really solve the problem of illegal immigration. What has to happen is that the Bible, which created North America, has to revive the North America and transform South America. Right. That is brilliant. I I hadn't thought about it that way, but you're absolutely right. And it strikes me, though, that in the United States, those who want to have the open borders, they don't want to have, uh, you know, an enforcement of the nation's laws such that immigration is controlled or immigration is stuck to a legal form of immigration as opposed to illegal. They are the ones who don't like the Bible. They are the ones who would, would like the Bible to go away. And that's, that's kind of an interesting development in Western history. And that's the moment we're living in. Absolutely right. They actually, it's not that they don't like the Bible. They don't even know the Bible. No. Because nation is a Jewish Protestant idea. Uh, it is um, Holland which took off at the end of the Reformation, led 80 years of war against Spain, uh, Spanish Empire, because Holland was 13 provinces ruled by the Holy Roman Empire in Spain. Holland is where Europe first accepted the Bible's idea of nation, that these provinces in what is now Holland should not be ruled by Spain. They are one territory, one people with one language, several dialects, but Bible in one language. They should be one nation governing themselves. So in 1648, Holland and Switzerland in the 
Treaty of uh, Peace of Westphalia. These two were the first European nations. Before that, whole of Europe was fascinated with the pagan idea of empire. Everybody wanted empire. <laughs> but it was Holland and Switzerland which inspired the American decision that the 13 colonies will not become 13 kingdoms and USA will not become an empire. It will become a nation, a great nation. So this promise begins in Genesis 12, where God calls Abraham uh, in chapter 10 and 11 of Genesis, God creates nations. And in chapter 12, he calls uh, Abraham that I will make you a great nation. Uh, So when the president in America talks about making America a great nation, it resonates with many people because he's speaking a biblical language, even if he doesn't fully comprehend Uh, what is a great nation and how to build a great nation. But it is like India is free today. It's a nation today because of the United States of America. It was uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt who, uh, during the Atlantic Charter in his meetings with Winston Churchill, who impressed upon the British uh, to end this idea of imperialism and empire and set all the colonies free. That's what made Israel a free nation. Uh, And all the uh, colonies became nations, so Syria, Iraq, Libya. Uh, The Muslim criticism that the idea of nation comes from Europe is correct, because Islam itself never had an idea of nation. This is a biblical idea. And American politicians now Uh, who are rejecting that uh, national borders should be respected, nations should be respected, they basically don't know the Bible and they don't understand why God demolished empires. Wow. That is a great point. We'll pick it up on the other side of the break. Vishal Mangawadi is my guest. This book changed everything. We'll come back on Janet Meffer today after this. When Julia ended a bad relationship, she found out she was pregnant. After the father told her to get an abortion, this mom was confused and didn't know what to do or who to talk to. I just knew that if I got an abortion, a part of me would be broken. Julia was referred to a preborn center where she was counseled and supported with the strength that she needed to choose life. I couldn't imagine my life without him. Because of them, he's here. We're going to get through it and it's going to be okay. Preborn centers provide hope, love, free ultrasounds, and the gospel of Jesus Christ to moms like Julia. Preborn truly is the alternative to Planned Parenthood. Will you join Preborn in helping love and support young moms in crisis? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help rescue five babies' lives. To donate, call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, 855-402-2229, or there's a Preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new health care program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through May 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the health care program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a health care sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options start 
start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today, and it is wonderful to have you with us. Also wonderful to have with us Vishal Mangalwadi, India's foremost Christian intellectual. That's how he's known. He's lectured in 40 countries and is out with a wonderful book on the Bible's amazing impact on our world, and it is called This Book Changed Everything. We were talking before the break, Vishal, about this really important distinction that you've made, the biblical concept of a nation, which you mentioned began in Europe with, you know, with uh, Holland and with Switzerland. And this versus this idea of empire. Now, I'm curious to ask you, do you see where we see these fights, uh, globally speaking, especially here in the United States, between those who want a sovereign nation and want to maintain the United States as a sovereign nation and fight against open borders versus those people who are more globalists? Would you associate globalism with this concept of empire that they have some similarities or, or maybe they're one and the same in your view? I don't know. Yes, actually, they prefer to use the word globalism rather than empire. But there are many people in EU, European Union, and in UN who do not understand the biblical idea of nations. So under Eisenhower uh, and in, at the end of the Second World War, uh, under the leadership of the United States of America, uh, they formed United Nation rather than United Empire. Hmm. Someone like Winston Churchill, who was imperialist, because England was a confused nation, uh, confused between nation and empire, uh, Churchill would have wanted America to team up with uh, uh, UK and create United Empires. So a few empires uh, that had won the First uh, Second World War should rule the whole nation. But... Uh, under pressure from the U.S., especially Eisenhower at that point, but it had begun with Roosevelt, um, the victors dissolved their empires, France, England. So the only empire that continued after World War II was the Russian Empire, which were atheists, because atheists don't believe that God created nations. Yes which is what Paul is saying in Acts 17, 26, and 27, that out of one man, God created all the nations. He set their borders and their times. Right. Now, Paul is quoting Moses, Deuteronomy 32, 8, which is saying that God has created the nations. So nations are sacred, their borders are sacred, but the world, such as India, countries, owe their independence from British Empire, from European empires, uh, to the United States and the Bible's idea of nation. But now, as American politicians and universities ignore the Bible, they have no philosophical foundation for private property. That's why there's so much talk about socialism. They have no respect for national borders. And this is not just a U.S. problem. Uh, when the Pope opposed uh, the idea of building 
the wall. Now, wall may be a bad idea because people can fly over it or tunnel under it. So a wall may be a bad idea, but to oppose it on principle that this is not Christian is to say that we reject the idea of nation and borders. Now, this is what Pope Paul had said, John Paul, who was a great man. He went to Mexico before his death, and he said to the Mexicans that you should be free to walk into North America, USA, and Canada because these international borders are artificial human construct. This is all kingdom of Christ. So that was a, a Catholic idea because Rome was a pagan empire. It was a city which had become an empire. And when it became Christian, a pagan political ideology came into the Roman Catholic Church. And But when Europe started studying the Bible as a result of the Reformation, then the biblical idea of nation came into Protestant nations, and that's why Protestantism created great nation, whereas Catholicism has failed to create great nations, because it doesn't actually believe in nations. So, yes, it is a secular problem with the secularists in America who talk about globalism, what they really mean in practice is empire. But... The Bible is the force that demolished empires because uh, empire makes you a subject. Nation makes you a citizen. Yes. Citizen is free. Uh, and uh, the, so I have one chapter in that book that you are, we are talking about that discusses this question, why didn't the USA become an empire? And there I discuss four great political ideas in the Bible. Empire, nation, great nation, and the kingdom of God. And I'll be happy to develop that more. Yeah. Oh, man, there's so much good stuff in the book that I want to get to. And that's right. I mean, hitting on the difference between empire and nation and tying that to a biblical understanding like you did with Acts 17 and also Deuteronomy chapter 32. This is what people need to hear. One of the things I want to discuss also, uh, because I want to get to this before we run out of time, there's so much here. One of the things I want to talk about, which is very much on the minds of American Christians in particular, is the moral collapse of the United States. And I think it's becoming more and more evident that we're in the midst of a very fast-tracked moral collapse. It's all around us. We now have drag queens reading storybooks to toddlers in public libraries, and people aren't even shocked by this. We have so much around us, the breakdown of the family. We have gun violence. We have abortion on demand. Can you speak to the issue of, you think of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, uh, many people have commented, fell because... It, you know, you ultimately you rotted from within. What about the importance of the Bible and, and returning to the Bible in that regard that when you're collapsing from within, obviously you have lost your moorings and, and not any longer, you know, paying attention to the foundations of Scripture and informing a populace and how to serve the Lord its God? Well, you're absolutely right. Derek Bock, B-O-K. He was the president of Harvard University and the only person in living memory who was elected president twice. He wrote a book before the economic crash of 2007 and 8. He wrote a book uh, called Our Underachieving Colleges. Hmm. And he said that all our colleges and universities have mission statements that we exist to create good citizens for the nations. Uh, nation or the nations. And he said that our colleges are no longer producing good moral citizens. Yes. Now, Stanley Fish responded to that book. Stanley Fish is a big name in postmodernism. 
He was Dean of Liberal Arts and Humanities in Chicago University for 30 years. His book is called um, Save the World on Your Own Time. <laughs> He's addressing the professors, saying to them, don't use university college classroom to teach ethics or character. Uh, you're trained as a chemist. You're hired to teach chemistry. You don't have the time to keep up with the research that is happening in chemistry. Therefore, stick to teaching chemistry. Don't and teach ethics. Now, he said that because while he was the dean, uh, Chicago University had appointed a panel to study whether the university can do more to teach ethics and cultivate character. And the, this panel, after four years of study, had decided that no, university cannot do more. It should not even attempt to try and teach ethics. Now, a third very important philosopher who responded to Derek Bach and Stanley Fish was Dallas Willard. He was a professor of philosophy in Southern California, died two, three years ago. And if you Google uh, Dallas Willard and Derek Bach, you will see dozens of places where he responds. He says that the problem is not that our professors are not teaching ethics or cultivating character. They cannot possibly do that. <laughs> Uh, he says that if all that President Bach needed to do was to get out of his chamber in president's chamber in Harvard, walk a long corridor, sit with his professors over a cup of coffee, in an hour he would know that there is no professor in Harvard University who has any philosophical basis for teaching any ethics or character. Mm. That's America's problem that secularism has destroyed. Yeah. Now, what does that mean in practice? Uh, it means that if you teach a young person that he's a beast, well, lots of beasts kill other animals and eat them. Why shouldn't one human beast pick up a gun and shoot other people? If you can kill chicken or kill cows, and we, in India we worship cows, you kill and eat cows, why shouldn't somebody kill and eat other human beings? Or why shouldn't Planned Parenthood kill kids and sell, sell their body parts because those kids are animals anyway? So the problem in, um, of this violence and breakdown of ethical standards in America is not that people have guns. You don't need a gun to burn down a Walmart. You just need a can of gas yep. and a cigarette lighter to burn down a whole shopping complex and kill everybody there. So uh, the question is, is a human being an animal? Is a baby nine months in his mother's womb? Is that baby an animal, a blob of meat? Or is he a person made in God's image? given inalienable rights. Uh, this is what enlightenment, humanism, and the Western epistemology of rationalism or empiricism has failed to uh, give us an understanding of what a human being is. And this is what is co uh, changing the moral uh, climate and ethos of not just North America, but also the, what used to be Protestant Europe. Yes. Oh, that's so well said. And and somebody had commented recently, I can't remember the source, that in the United States now, we're not only confused about what is man, we don't even know what is woman, because now we're calling men who think they're women 
men, uh, women, and then we're allowing them to compete in sports with women. So, I mean, we are so off track and we so desperately need to return to the word of God to get our minds on straight. And you can really see all of this as you read through Vishal Mangawadi's great book, This Book Changed Everything. Vishal, so wonderful to talk to you. Thank you very, very much for being with us today. Well, thank you for this privilege. God bless you and God bless your audience and the United States of America. Thank you so much. God bless you. This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back to Janet Mefford today. Back in 2014, the New York Times ran an article reflecting on the life of Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple. And when a reporter asked Jobs if his kids love the new iPad, he said this, they haven't used it. We limit how much technology our kids use at home. Now that's pretty mind-blowing that one of the big tech giants was astute enough to recognize the need to protect his own kids from the power of technology, even as he was inflicting it on the rest of the world. But what does that mean for us? And as Christians, how can we break free from the power of screens to reclaim our thought lives and fulfill what the Lord has for us to do in real life? We're going to talk about it today with Doug Smith, who is author of Unintentional, How Screens Secretly Shape Your Desires and How You Can Break Free. Doug, it's great to have you here. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Jana. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you have a lot of experience, I understand, with web programming, so you know something of technology. When did you begin to become concerned about the problem of screen immersion? Oh, thank you for asking. Yeah, I've been a web developer for, uh, you know, for almost as long as the internet's been around, for more than 20 years. Um, but my biggest concerns came as, as a dad of four daughters, as I watched, you know, my own girls facing, uh, you know, the, the increasing influence of screens in their lives. And, and that was before, even before smartphones. But as I saw this, as, after the release of the smartphone, things really, really ramped up. And that was we hard to remember. It was only 10 years ago, wow. roughly, you know, 2007, 2008. And uh, so, so what happened is, is you just, I just started noticing everyone's, on their screens all the time. What is up with that? And and it started. It really concerned me, especially as a Christian as well, uh, because I was seeing Christian people. I was going to church, and instead of listening to the sermon, there's someone on their phone. Yep. You know, it's like, what is going on? So I, it started a quest for me about, um, gosh, back in 2014 is when it really struck me that I needed to start speaking out on the subject. Oh, I'm so glad that you are because there's so much good material in this book. I think everybody needs to know what you're advocating here and what you're schooling people on. Talk a little bit about the addiction factor. I know there has been some news about that. And from time to time, they talk about, oh, how these companies actually intentionally try to get you addicted. So you'll keep coming back, things like social media and so forth. But speak a little bit, if you would, to the power of addiction to screens and why we get addicted. Because I think for a lot of people, they don't really understand why do I have this insatiable desire to check my phone every five seconds? Right. And, and that's the critical factor, Janet, is that it is intentional on the part of the industry. Their business model is all based on how much we use their quote unquote free apps, you know, free, the free apps that they, they provide for us. So, um, so 
it is a bona fide addiction. And the more I've, as you know, when you, anytime you go down a rabbit hole and you, and you dig and dig into the research, you can find, wow, there is, there's so much intentionality. These are the largest tech companies hire top behavioral psychologists and neuroscientists. They, they do um, thousands and thousands of tests to figure out what's the most, what is the thing that keeps us hooked the longest. And it's all about exploiting essentially weaknesses in our behavioral psychology and the chemical makeup of our brain. Hmm. And we can go pretty deep into that. But the, for example, the, uh, the neurotransmitter dopamine is a, you know, I call it the elixir of our brain's pleasure system. Uh, and it, it can be triggered not only by you know, substances that we sometimes think about, you know, we think of a drug addict, well, that, that gets the dopamine cycle going in the, in the brain. The pleasure cycle gets it overloaded and causes us to crave more of that same pleasure. Well, things on screens do the same thing, that the like buttons, the, um, the uh, endless scrolling, the, oh, I wonder if somebody commented, the, all of those kinds of things and the, and the quick access to it and, and hundreds of more are all, again, intentionally designed by top people that are that are their whole job is to get us using and to get us thinking about what's the next thing that um, what's what's the next thing that I need to be looking at on my phone as like the top of mind thing whenever I'm bored whenever I need to be distracted and so on so it's it's very intentional on the industry's part yeah it sure is is that more the case would you say on social media than anywhere else or is it equally addictive in other sectors um, I think social media is probably the big poster child, but video games are also very significant. Yes. Um, especially the, well, then they have a social component, right? I mean, right. most, many parents of, of boys of a certain age, especially, have heard of Fortnite. Uh, that, that one, um, according to a, a new friend of mine who's a clinical psychologist, says there's, uh, Richard, Dr. Richard Fried says there's actually 200 specific exploits of your behavioral psychology in Fortnite alone. Mm. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's probably those are the, the main ones, but I also, um, bring out pornography and pornography is a, is a direct dopamine target. So there's a habitual addictive factor to pornography in addition to the, you know, the Christian sin aspect to that as well. So, yeah. um, and of course the porn industry anywhere from can go up to like some, some measures say like 30% of the internet is um, consumed with that kind of traffic. So Horrible. those are the, those are like the big three in my mind. Yeah. Now when you mentioned the pleasure center of your brain and they know how to trigger it and get you addicted and that sort of thing, what else are, are there other things we need to be aware of? Cause I think the dopamine, a lot of people have heard that, but are there other ways too that they get you addicted to technology and you just have to keep going back to your phone. You have to keep going back to that game. Are there other things that they're doing that we're not aware of? I think one of the things that a lot of people aren't aware of is how much data is collected about us. Mm. We hear about, um, you know, we hear about privacy concerns and we hear, you know, we're, we know that, that, for example, you know, Facebook and Google has tons and tons of data. But I think most people don't realize the vast amounts of the constant communication that our devices are having. They know, like... Um, how, how long we linger over a certain post. They, they know what videos we like and if we'll watch the whole thing. Um, so they know what's next. They know what to show us next. Hmm. And so they use our data, they use the knowledge they have about us against us by targeting the things that keep us hooked. So we, whenever we open our app, we're pleasantly surprised to find something that we were hoping to find there. Yeah, that's and true. that is because they 
they know more, really more about us than we know about ourselves in many cases. Yeah, we're happy to see it in simultaneously creeped out. At least that's my reaction half yes. the time. <laughs> how did that YouTube so know? Yeah, how did YouTube know that I would want to see this video? That's creepy. Right. It's ridiculous. Well, but yet for kids, this is what's interesting, Doug, and I'm sure you've encountered this, but for kids, their reaction to, hey, listen, this is going on, they know how to manipulate you, and they know how to get you coming back. A lot of kids will just say, so what? I don't care. It's fun. I like being on social media. I like interacting with my friends. What do you say to those kids on why that addiction is bad for you and why you need to come up with ways to not be so addicted to technology? Yeah, that's a that's a really deep conversation there. I, I think um, for me as a Christian dad, uh, it really starts with the parents setting a culture in your home about what we're here for. Um, what are what are we here to do? What are what are we on this planet to do? And so setting a context with our kids about, um, you know, are we here to provide free data to the biggest corporations in the industry? <laughs> Uh, for the rest of our lives, are we the equivalent? Are we here to work the equivalent of a four time of a full time job for free? You know, looking at advertisements and and playing the latest thing just because it feels good. Hmm. Um, so that's that's one part of it. Another aspect is, you know, if you can have a deep conversation with with uh, you know a child or a teen, most of them don't want to be tricked or lied to. Yeah. You know, so I I like to work that angle as well. Like, did you understand? Like, I know this feels good. I know it really feels good to play those games. Or to, or to be on that social media. But at, the, but at the end of the day, did you know that you're being, it's, it's designed to keep you that way? Hmm. And, and so playing that angle as far as the, um, the idea that this is, uh, this is intentionally luring you. You're, it's, I think of uh, the old movie Pinocchio, you know, where Pinocchio is um, led by his friends to go play on Pleasure Island, I think it was. Yep. And, and it's all fun, yay, 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 until they turn them into donkeys and send them to salt mines. It's that kind of a, it's that kind of a imagery I have. Um, you know, when you when you wake up one day and you've spent ten thousand hours mastering a video game and you have no other skills, oh. you know that that is that's not where we want our kids to be. So true. What time wasted it also is part of the equation. We waste so much time yeah. doing this. What have you really got to show for it at the end of the day? And there's also a spiritual dimension that you mentioned that underlies this entire thing. We'll come back and talk about that with Doug Smith. His book is called Unintentional, How Screens Secretly Shape Your Desires and How You Can Break Free. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International, engaging the world with God's Word for more than 80 years. Believers in Africa are hungry to read their very own Bibles. Hear from Pastor Jeremiah in Zimbabwe. The church is growing very fast in the northern part of the country where Tsonga-speaking people and Zulu-speaking people. And, uh, you know, we find that there's a movement of the Holy Spirit there where the hunger or spiritual hunger is very much visible. If you can imagine 10 Christians right now in many places in Africa, on average, nine have no access to the Bible. Here's Lillian in Mozambique. We went to this church just on the outskirts of Maputo. 
uh, the church had about um, about a hundred people, and the the only person actually who had a Bible was the pastor. But everybody else had never seen a Bible, and that gives us motivation to want to go more, to do more, to reach to as many people as we can. You know where God gives us opportunity to go there and just take the word of God. Through Bible studies and resources that introduce people to Jesus Christ, Bible Leak is faithfully discipling new believers in Kenya, Ghana, Ethiopia, and many other African countries. Here's an evangelist named Joseph in South Africa. We were in a place called Mpumalanga. The lady there is about 60, 62 years or so. She literally cried. She knelt down and she cried. She never, at the age of 60, she never had a Bible. It is so much fulfilling just to see people like her rejoicing um, when they receive their Bibles. You can be the answer to a Christian praying for God's word through Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa. $5 sends one Bible, $50 sends 10, and a matching grant will double your gift and help us reach our goal to send 1,500 Bibles. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. Do you ever get to the end of an hour or two on your smartphone and say, boy, that was a waste of time? Why did I spend such a long time on social media today? Or maybe you're saying it about your kids. Well, there are reasons that you can become addicted to your screen. And we're talking with Doug Smith about his book that covers this subject, Unintentional, How Screens Secretly Shape Your Desires and How You Can Break Free. Doug, you mentioned in your book, as I teased before that last break, that there is a spiritual dimension that also underlies what is going on with this screen addiction. Can you talk a little bit about that? I sure can, Janet. And that was one of the things that I think surprised me as I really dug into it, uh, the case for the spiritual dimension, the really the spiritual warfare dimension of the things that are going on. As, a, as Christians, you know, we, we are taught in the scriptures, and Jesus modeled very many times, that there is an unseen battle. There's, there are things going on. And the, and the key aspect that I found is this idea that um, in, in John 10.10, 10, it says, Jesus says that, that the, that the devil is a liar and the father of lies. Yeah. So anytime we're lied to, any t- any, the source of a lie, that you can trace it back to the father of lies. And so I, I look at that and I thought, okay, is there, is there something? I mean, it, is there the, the irony that, that the enemy is referred to as the prince of the power of the air right. and that all these things are coming over the air? Um, hmm. To me, the more again, the more I dug into it, the more I thought this is not a coincidence. This is it's too effective. It's worldwide. It's and it affects Christians and non-Christians almost, you know, in the, at the same rate. Um, and and it's and where is it taking us? Well, it's leading us into ideas that are not biblical. It's leading us to think not biblically. It's leading us to not be able to even like have five seconds to pray. Hmm. You know, if these things like. You know, if we can't have quiet moments and hear a still small voice, like all these things are specifically targeted against the very things that really make us able to walk with God on a day-by-day basis. Mm, yeah. And, and that's got to be a strategy. There's got to be something behind it. It works too well. It's not, it's not an accident. And, and so I, I, I make the case in Chapter 4 that I, 
I, it's relatively bold, but um, but I think there is a spiritual dimension to it, and uh, I think the evidence is pretty clear. I think so, too. Do you see that, for example, in some of these statistics that have come out about people increasingly not reading their Bibles? I mean, you mentioned smartphones, and people take their smartphones out at church, and you don't hear the pages turning the way you used to. People aren't bringing their physical Bibles, in some cases, the way they used to. Is that part of it? Do you see uh, the, that as you're addicted to your smartphone, you have less of an attention span? for sitting down in many cases and reading many pages of scripture, for example, in the morning. Absolutely, yeah. But the, the attack on our attention span is tremendous. And as, as we know, anyone who studied the scripture for any length of time knows it's a complicated book and it takes, it takes effort. It takes the ability to keep a concept in your head for longer than, you know, nine seconds the <laughs> time a goldfish swims around its little goldfish. Right, right. right. So it's, uh, so it's like, yeah, no, no. The targeting of our of our um, attention span is a is a huge de- detriment to our our ability to understand the scriptures, to pay attention to a message, to to really even think clearly. And and that's one of the heartbreaking. There were many heartbreaking things as I just re- realized what was going on, and the our inability to think clearly goes really at the heart of who we are, our identity. Yeah. If we if we aren't free to think our own thoughts or to or to hear from God, then you know, we've lost something tremendous about who he's made us to be. Well, that's a really important point. How do you think users can evaluate themselves to see if screens have become too addictive? How do you know if you're too addicted? What would be, you know, some of the ways that you could evaluate that? Well, that's a great question. Um, well, I, I happen to have a questionnaire uh, for anyone who's interested. I have a website called How I Am I, which is I for intentional. So how I am I dot com. And people go there, they can download my free uh, assessment, um, and it just asks a lot of questions about, about things that you may not realize. There, there are many ways to, uh, to look at it, um, because most people just aren't aware. Again, the statistics show that the average is anywhere from 6 to up to 12 hours a day, depending on the study, of engagement with media on various screens. Mm-hmm. And we get that from multitasking. We get up to the 12-hour figure by you know, scrolling Facebook while we're watching TV or something. But at the, at the end of the day, you know, we didn't set out to do that. On, and so, um, as we know, smartphones have come out recently with apps like Screen Time. And so it'll tell us, uh, at least at that, at that level, if we, if we use that app, how much we're using it each week. Uh, but, you know, then there's the, all the other screens in our lives as well. So I really encourage people to, um, to, to, to take a, a, a deep look, a deep self-evaluation, and really line that up then with where you hope your life would be by now. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, because when we're talking about screens, we're not just talking about the internet or smartphones. We're also talking about things like TV. I mean, you say in the book, you've taken cable out of your home. I think that's a great idea. We've done the same thing. I don't even want to be, I don't want to be looking. There's so much garbage on TV. Why do I need it? Absolutely. It's not. And and again, it's, uh, for me, it's uh, so much of what I get known for is what I'm saying no to, but at the end of the day, it's what we're saying yes to instead. You know, we're, we're here for a purpose. God's made us for a reason. The world is very needy, and there's lots of things we should be doing besides, again, spending, you know, 30, 40, 40 hours a week um, watching entertainment screens on one thing or another. Uh, again, we don't set out to do that, but if we look back over our lives, we go, wow, I wish I could have done, I wish I could have helped so-and-so, I wish I could have learned this, I wish I could have... Um, you know, at the end of the day, I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Right. Um, that's, that's what I'm here for. So when I think about that, cable doesn't fit that, 
that equation. Yeah, that's such a good point. So when you're talking about applying biblical practices in order to combat your screen addiction, the first one you mentioned is surrendering to Jesus Christ. How does this fit? People say, well, I thought I was surrendered to Jesus Christ. How does that really fit with my addiction to Facebook or my addiction to Twitter? What do you mean by that, Doug? Oh, thank you for asking that. Yeah, that is the fundamental starting point in terms of the biblical practices that I recommend that people apply in their lives to be able to walk in intentional freedom. So we think about surrender. For me, surrender is a day-by-day, even moment-by-moment, because we might surrender one thing and think we're good, When, but if we're open, then we, we pray that really dangerous prayer, search me, O God, and know my heart, try me and know my anxious hmm. thoughts, see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in your everlasting way. That's a pretty open prayer, and there's always something. So um, the thing about surrender in regard to our screens is that it's a very different conversation than the culture typically has, which is usually around a word, the word we love to use is balance. Mm-hmm. We love to say, you just need balance with your technology. You know, don't, you know, and I'm not advocating people become Amish <laughs> by any means, but I am advocating that the word balance is, is really a troublesome word because we're all balanced in our own eyes. I'm the most balanced person I know. I often sure. tell people. So, um, and, you know, so it's all you all, you know, it's all y'all that are, yes. you know, they're off on one tangent or another, right? But, um, but anyway, all the ways of a right man are right in his own eyes. So, um, but the Lord tests the heart. So surrender, starting from Lord, where, what role should screens have in my life? And being really willing to hear an answer that may be a lot less than you're doing right now. <laughs> that's, um, that's really where it comes from. And, and being willing to say, Lord, uh, I surrender this to you. I surrender this device to you. I surrender it even to the point of giving it up if I have to, depending on what people are tempted by on, on various screens. They may need to take a really, really long break or do something really different, right. uh, very countercultural. Right. I mean, you, you say that even some people shouldn't even have a smartphone. And I'm sure everybody will say, well, that's the other guy. That's not me. <laughs> and I, I right. certainly don't need to get rid of my smartphone. That's the guy next door who has a problem with it. Absolutely. And yeah, when I, when I speak on that, I can hear the air go out of the room when I say that. What? Huh. You know, some people may not have a sound phone, uh, you know, a smartphone and, and kids, uh, like my kids shouldn't have a smartphone. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. no. You, and, and again, but the, but the point is, you know, they've only been around 10 years. Why have they become an extra limb? Right. They've become an extra, mm-hmm. because of an intentional design that are leading you off track. So um, being, we have to be willing to ask that question and say, and say, you know, I'm here for you, Lord, not for the biggest corporations in the world. Where, where does this fit in my life? And, and a lot of people can have some, but I've, I've talked to guys, especially that trying to break for, free from, you know, online addictions, porn or whatever, and they just need to have a flip phone right now. Hmm. And yeah. uh, until, that, until that tentacles from those addictions are totally, you know, broken free, and then maybe they can introduce it with some certain boundaries around it. I think that makes a lot of sense, whether it's just fasting from a social media site for a while or deleting your account or, like you say, just get rid of the smartphone and get a flip phone. Go back to talking on the phone. I know this will send the kids nuts. Talking on phones? I can't text that way. (laughs) You know how they go. Yeah, but really, really good advice. Again, the name of the book is Unintentional, How Screens Secretly Shape Your Desires and How You Can Break Free by Doug Smith, who's been kind enough to join us today, and we're delighted you did. Doug, thank you so much. 
Thank you so much. It's been an honor to be with you today. Oh, it's my honor. Thanks again, Doug. Appreciate your being here and God bless. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to Janet Mefford today. As always, we appreciate your being with us and we'll see you next time. God bless you. This hour of Janet Mefford today has been brought to you by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD.